Alright, if you'll take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. As you can see there, there wasn't uh, singing. And Pastor is definitely gracious, but after they heard me on Wednesday, we, we kind of disqualified that from all future services uh, just because of how terrible that was. So I do apologize uh, to all those on Facebook and those who didn't know our church before that. <laughs> just joking. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Um, on Wednesday night, we went over a lot of information on John the Baptist. We kind of just paused there uh, just for sake of the fact that his, his ministry was so uh, influential. Uh, but not just influential, it was so specific. Um, John's baptism was something that was um, definitely divinely uh, separate from even the baptism that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. It was a different form of repentance, and so we just really kind of paused there and just honed in on him. It was kind of fun to just look back at his birth and um, his just ministry as he grew up and as the forerunner of Christ, the ambassador of Christ, just looking at his specific ministry. But as we go into uh, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to get into the uh, temptation of Christ. And we're really going to exalt Christ's priestly office as well as his moral character. It's something that we definitely see uh, exemplified in chapter 4. And just re really wanted to comment on what Pastor said about prayer. It definitely is huge, and it's, it's good to be reminded of that, especially during times like these. You know, a lot of decisions are made, and maybe there's frustration, maybe there's confusion, and there's there's talk, and there's kind of back and forth and things that, that go on like that. But if, if we as a church... If we as a body of Christ, you know, throughout the nation, took those requests, took those questions, took the frustrations, and brought them to God, imagine what would happen. A lot of times we kind of give them to each other, but think about, you know, David said, pour out your heart before the Lord, pour out your soul before the Lord. And, and God says, you know, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. You know, if you're frustrated, uh, bring it to God. If you're sad, bring it to God. If you're lonely, bring it to God. He definitely takes care of those needs. So that was just a good reminder. Uh, definitely in my spirit as well. So Matthew chapter 4, again, going over the temptation of Christ. Um, a lot of people take this passage and we personalize it, which is definitely good because there's a lot we can learn um, from the way Christ dealt with Satan as far as he was tempted. Um, but there's also more of a prophetical context too. Christ is really exemplifying what the nation of Israel should have done in the wilderness. And his actions here in chapter 4 uh, really convict the, the conduct of the nation of Israel as they made their way through the wilderness with Moses. And as we as we kind of look through it, chapter 4, you're going to see a parallel there um, that we're definitely going to look at this morning. And you got to remember Matthew. Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews, and he's really trying to convict the Jewish people that Jesus Christ was their true king, their true Messiah. And so he's going to, he's going to specifically put some things in here um, that are really going to bring that knowledge to those specific people. So in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, to be tempted of the devil. Now here we're going to see the moral character of Jesus Christ exemplified. We're going to see his priestly character. In verse 2 it says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. Now if we're going to interpret the Bible literally, and again, there, this is I'm not sure if this is solid fact, but just based on reading the word, it would, it would kind of allude to the fact that during the 40 days that he was fasting, he did not think in regards of his physical hunger that he had. It says he was afterward in hungry, as if Christ in the wilderness was so um, sustained, so influenced by, by the Spirit, so influenced by his dependence on God that he wasn't even recollecting necessarily his physical, his physical status at that time. And afterwards, it says that he physically hungered. Again, if you think about the nation of Israel— 
in the in the wilderness, and we're going to look at it in a second. They were to depend, to depend solely upon God. Christ was to be their manna. Christ was to be their water. He was to be their sustenance. And Jesus Christ really is going to show you how the nation of Israel should have acted during that time period. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, hold your place in Matthew, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul actually uh, mentions this to the church of Corinth. It's kind of interesting um, how he takes it back to Israel at this time. But if you'll hold your place in Matthew chapter 4 and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual meat, drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in where? In the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent. We should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So again, you see the parallel there. The nation of Israel not trusting in God during that period of time, not allowing him to sustain them, um, but being you know, taken away in their own physical lust. They murmured, they complained, um, they, they, they tempted God, they, they were mad at God, they said that they wanted to go back to Egypt. And so Christ, during his 40 days of trial in the wilderness, is going to show them how they should have, that they should have acted. Now in verse 3, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Command that these stones be made bread. Now hold your place there and go to, with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Back in the Old Testament there. And this is the passage that Christ is actually going to uh, quote numerous times. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll start reading here in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 1 says, All the commandments which I shall command thee this day shall ye observe and do that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which in the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that the man doth not live by bread alone, bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So again, Christ is going to really parallel these passages, Deuteronomy chapter 8, which Israel very well knew of. And he's going to show them that through his temptation in the wilderness, 40 days mirroring that 40 years in the wilderness, that he is going to actually do the commandments that they should have done, but yet they failed. And so let's keep reading here in verse 4. It says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now there's a very, um, as we're looking kind of contextually through this passage, there's also a practical note to kind of uh, focus in on as well. And I was thinking about this a couple uh, months back, actually, as I was reading through Exodus. And God took the nation of Israel out of Egypt, a place of bondage, a place that they were slaves in. It was not a good place, um, but it was a place of physical comfort. They had their physical needs to an extent taken care of. They didn't have to worry about being in the wilderness, not knowing where they were to go as far as their direction was concerned. They were they were in one specific place, and it, it was an easy place to get complacent. It was not a place that they could have fellowship with God. And so it, it, if you look at that, and then God obviously through Moses takes them out into the wilderness. If you read that passage, it says that they get three days into the wilderness after they're singing praises to God, after they're rejoicing in the fact that God has led them through the Red Sea. And it says that after three days, they become thirsty. 
And they start complaining against God. They start murmuring against God. And they even take it to Moses. And you, you remember they come to that place, that place of uh, Mara, And it says that the waters were bitter. The waters were bitter to them. And if you know the story, there was a tree by the side of the water. And Moses cut it and threw it in the water. And it became sweet. And obviously there's a picture of Christ there. But if you think about it, how many Christians do you see? They, they, they start coming to church. They, they start getting discipled. Um, you know, and then eventually they get saved, but it's almost like the people, the converts that we get saved, they last about a week and then you never see them again. Or they get saved and then they automatically get out of church or they automatically fall back into sin and you kind of wonder, you kind of think of these things. But it's because of the fact that when you get saved, you're a new creature and you, you have new life, but that life can't be sustained upon the things that you used to do prior to your conversion. And so if you think about the, the nation of Israel, when they got to the wilderness experience, they were put to the test to the real measure of their acquaintance with God. And it was more of a test on treating them how they're supposed to approach God as as they have this new kind of relationship. It's different than Egypt, right? They're in the wilderness. They're in a new place. They don't have their normal um, um, flesh pots. They don't have their normal provision of food. And and they have to acquire their, their new sustenance off of God. And when you become saved, that's literally how it is. You have a new life, but that life has to be sustained by the word of God. It has to be sustained by the preaching of God. It has to be sustained by the people of God, by the spirit of God. And so if you don't know how to do that, obviously you're going to end up like the nation of Israel and you're going to complain and you're going to become confused and you're going to want to go back to Egypt, back to the world. It's the difference between salvation in relation to God. God saves us. We rejoice in our salvation. I don't know anybody that's, that's saved that's not happy that they're not going to go to hell. But the relation that they have to God is still tested through, the, through their life. And this is the same thing that we see in the nation of Israel. They, they were tested. They didn't have a relationship with God. They were the chosen people. They were in uh, uh, Egypt. They had the promises, but they had not yet been taken out of that place. And their relationship with God had not been tried. If you look in that passage in Exodus, when they complain, who do they go to? They go to Moses. They go to Moses. They go to Moses because they haven't realized that their dependence needs to come from God. And so God was God's attempt through the wilderness was to train them. If you read that passage, he didn't just take them straight to the Philistines. He diverted them to the wilderness for 40 years to test them to see if they'd walk in the law of God or not. And so here in, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is going to pass the test that the nation of Israel should have passed back in the Old Testament. So as a Jew reading this, you're really going to become convicted as you think about those Old Testament um, verses, those Old Testament places. But also we, we see Jesus's priesthood exemplified here if you'll hold your place in matthew chapter 5 go with me to hebrews chapter 2 really quick hebrews chapter 2 just to lay more of a context of what's going to happen to christ here hebrews chapter 2 and we're going to start reading in verse 14 hebrews 2 14 it says for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherein in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And so here Christ not only is going to show Israel the morality of the situation, how they should have acted in the wilderness, but he's also going to fulfill the actions that he needed to complete in order to be deemed a faithful high priest by God. 
a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's un, it's an unchangeable priesthood, and Christ was going to complete that here. So in Matthew chapter four, but we'll, we'll keep uh, go back to Matthew chapter four and verse four, and we're just going to continue here. But he answered and said, "It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God." Now Christ had supernatural power. You understand, he had the power to turn the stones specifically into bread. But he didn't use that power for himself. The moment that Christ would have stooped down to save himself, he would have disqualified himself from the ability that he had to save us. He had to hold that in. He had to refrain from that. He had to, he had to live in the flesh. He had to feel the temptation of the flesh in order for him to be a faithful high priest and to understand what we go through as far as the things that we experience in temptation in our flesh. And mankind always tries to magnify our rights that we have. But Jesus Christ here shows that the only right that man has is to abandon his rights to the Lord in obedience to his will. And that's what the nation of Israel didn't understand. They thought that, oh, God's going to take us out of Egypt. He's going he's gonna to save us. He's going to give us a place of comfort. He's going to give us a kingdom. But in reality, they didn't understand that they had to have a relationship with God. And it was different than just being saved. God desires to have a relationship with his people. But you have to have, again, it's, it's dependent upon our obedience to him. And they had to obey him in this form. <clears throat> now, if we keep on reading, go to verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. <clears throat> Now, what Satan is alluding to is as God's son, there was implication that he had the right to put God to the test. But to test God would be to abandon your dependence upon him. Why do you test something? You test something because you don't have confidence in it, and you want to test to see if, if it can actually be sure as far as what it's supposed to do. And so if Jesus Christ standing on this, this pinnacle, and if he was to leap off and, and test the promises of God, he would only do that because he didn't trust that God would actually fulfill that. But with confidence in God, you don't need to do those kind of things. I mean, think of this from a practical standpoint. If you have full faith in God, then regardless of the circumstances, you don't have to you don't have to try to take the promises of God or take the word of God and utilize it in a wrong fashion if you truly trust that God is able to do what he's going to do. I mean, even even going through times like this, going through this crazy time of regardless of if the virus is, is what it is or regardless of if people are worried for no reason, I mean, if you truly have faith in God and know that he's fully in control, then you as a Christian aren't going to throw in the towel and aren't going to think that God's just going to give up and that we're just going to you know, fall and fail. I mean, you got to trust that God still has this thing in control. And so just like this, Jesus goes, I'm not going to tempt the Lord, that, the Lord God. I don't have to. I know that he could save me, but I'm not going to try the Lord. And so here's what you know, Satan's trying to get him to do. Verse 7, Jesus said unto him, it is, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now go to verse 8, it says again, The devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and sheweth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now think about this. Now we all think of this as like a mountain, and he's just looking over this little scope of these different kingdoms. But Jesus Christ had the ability here with the devil to see every kingdom of the entire world. I mean, you got to realize how high up this would have been, and what a sight this would have been. And in verse 9 it says, and, and Satan saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus saith unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now again, Satan, uh, Jesus doesn't rebuke Satan for his statement. 
Satan does have control over those kingdoms temporarily. But what he said is that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fall down and worship you. I'm gonna worship the Lord thy God. Jesus Christ knew that those kingdoms were inherently his, but his his pathway to obtain those kingdoms was not was not worshiping Satan, but it was the cross, and he foresaw that. And he wasn't going to allow Satan to divert him from his mission, the mission that God wanted him to do. Hold your place in Matthew um, chapter 5 here and go with me to Psalms 110. Psalms 110. David records many messianic song, psalms, and, and it's very interesting when you read these in light of just the New Testament here. But Psalms 110, hold your place in Matthew 5 and go to Psalms 110. It says this, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until... I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauty of holiness, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of the youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Christ knew that before he had to obtain this crown, he had to go through the cross. Because he's not going to just reign as a king, but he's going to be our great high priest to the body of Christ. And he's not just a priest to us, but he, he is the priest specifically to the nation of Israel as well. And that priesthood supersedes prior to the kingdom that he's going to establish. You understood that understand that Jesus Christ died, he was raised again the third day, and as you proceed towards the New Testament, he goes back up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God until God the Father has made all his enemies his footstool, and he's going to come back, and you just read in Psalms 110 that he's going to come back in the day of his wrath, and he's going to, the word of God's going to come out of his mouth, the battle of Armageddon, and it's going to destroy those nations that are, that are set up in opposition to God. And so prophetically, as Satan goes, worship me, Christ, and I'll give you all these kingdoms, Christ already in his foreknowledge knew of the things that he had to go through, the mission that he had to accomplish in order to fulfill all specific things. So he wasn't going to be subverted by Satan's attempt to distract him. Verse 11, then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Then the devil leaveth him. Now notice this, if you go to James chapter 4, James is... You understand that that book, James, the book of James was written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And in the book of James chapter 4, verse 7, what does it say? It says, resist the devil and he shall flee from you. I mean, Jesus Christ literally uses that, that verse in this context as he resists Satan three times with the word of God. And Satan has no other choice but to leave him. He leaves Christ. And as we close up this, this brief portion in regards to Christ's temptation, it's important to note that in, go with me, hold your, hold your place here in Matthew chapter 5, but go with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, in verse 16. 1 John 2, 16. Hold your place in Matthew, go to 1 John 2, and we're going to go to 15. We're going to read verse 15 first. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You see the lust of the flesh. You see the lust of the eyes. You see the pride of life. Three things, three avenues that Satan tried to use to tempt Christ. You say, why is that important? Because we as humans are tempted in the same way. We're tempted with the lust of our flesh. We're tempted with this idea of the pride of life that we want to accomplish. 
and, we're, and we're, we're tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, um, the eyes also, the things that we want to see in opposition to the things that God wants to give us. And that's important because in Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus Christ was tempted in all points as we were. And so he had to experience each one of those temptations to be able to accomplish his ministry of being a priest, being able to secure us that are tempted because he in all points was tempted just like we are. And so this was part of his ministry um, specifically as a high priest to us and as well as the nation of Israel. In verse 12, it says of Matthew chapter 5, if you go back, or Matthew chapter 4, we're actually in Matthew chapter 4. Go back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse uh, 12 here. It says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. He departed into Galilee. Now, we talked about John the Baptist's ministry on Wednesday, and Jesus Christ's ministry paralleled John the Baptist's ministry, and it was dependent upon him. And so as soon as Jesus hears that John the Baptist was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And in verse 13, it says, In leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and Nephilim. Verse 14, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon, the land of Nephilim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region of death, the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up. Now that was a fulfillment of Isaiah, as it just states there, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. He was still operating even after his temptation, according to what he was supposed to do, specifically prophetically. Now, if you go to verse 17, it says, From that time forth, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Again, you see, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? If we think about where we are as the body of Christ, we don't care so much about physical healing because this world is not our home. We're seeking heaven, right? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These people were, death wasn't, wasn't gained to them because their king was here. That God was going to establish their throne. To enter this kingdom of heaven, they had to, their physical infirmities, right? Even their physical infirmities had to be healed. That's why Christ healed everybody. Because he was offering this specific kingdom. And this gospel of the kingdom was being preached. In verse 24, it says, And his fame went through all, out of all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. You see, Jesus, uh, is his fame uh, begins to increase, obviously, specifically because of the fact of his healings, right? The multitudes flocked to him to be healed of all their kind of infirmities. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that gospel of that heavenly kingdom that was to come. And so he, he gains more fame and more fame and more fame. And it was just led up to, again, by John the Baptist's ministry. Now, as we come into chapter 5, we don't have a whole lot of time left. Just a couple minutes here. I really just want to get through verse 1 through verse 10. If we can just get through verse 1 through verse 10 really quick. 
I think that'll be good. Now, as we come to this chapter 5, we're going to start looking at the Sermon on the Mount that God preached, that Christ preached. And this is one of the most famous sermons that's used in Christianity. Not just Christianity, but there's a lot of people like Gandhi or people like uh, people that are that are humanists and, and, and try to use this passage as some kind of standard of living that would somehow fix the world. And, you know, we talked we talked last uh, Wednesday about how we can't come and preach like John the Baptist did to this nation. Right. John was preaching to a chosen people who had the law and who were semi prepared to receive Christ. We talked about that verse in Second Chronicles, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. Well, who was that people? It was the nation of Israel. The, 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 the world, if you think about the world, if we're going to come to the United States, we can't just preach this, this message of repentance. We can't just preach this Sermon on the Mount. It's not going to fix them. We preach the gospel of what's called reconciliation. There's no hope. Paul said, but God that forbid that I should glory, save what? Saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to bring people to, to a heavenly place, it's not through this, this preaching of repentance as if we're going to preach to Israel. It's the preaching of the cross of the death and burial of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you have to separate the two. This, this message, this sermon was given to a people, a people that were waiting this righteous kingdom. And they had been taught a form of righteousness by the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, a righteousness that they had heard verbally for over 400 years. They had looked at the sacrifices, looked at the rituals. They had looked at all these things, and they thought that was good enough, and they're waiting for this kingdom. But then Jesus has to come, and he has to go, look, I'm not coming to destroy the law, but to fulfill. And I have to I have to declare unto you what this righteousness actually is, because you're not using the law lawfully. That is what this sermon is for. That is what it is for. It's not for salvation. It, it, it's showing Israel what the law was actually intended to do. Verse 1, it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, one thing I want you to notice about this, though, is that these are conditional things. These are conditional things. Now, as, 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 a, as a New Testament believer in the body of Christ, there are some things that are conditional. I mean, you know, God says, for whatsoever a man soweth, that also shall he reap. And so there's things that are that are conditional. But here, this is conditional over whether or not they're going to enter the kingdom. This is about this is about whether or not you want to come into this thing or not. And so this is the this is kind of the framework of what he's going to say here. He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Again, this kingdom of heaven is not heaven that we're looking for. This is a kingdom of heaven that's that's coming down, right? Things as earth as it is in heaven. The Jews had a earthly they have a earthly promise in the millennial reign that's going to be done on earth and so they're looking from an earthly standpoint and think about this practically if you look i've never read this in light of this kingdom and when you do it just this light comes on because you have to look at it practically he goes blessed are the poor in spirit now as a as a as a christian in the body of christ are we supposed to be poor in spirit paul said to rejoice always and again i say rejoice right our home is in heaven our, our, our place is in heaven. We sit in heavenly places, as Ephesians tells us. So for us to be poor in spirit, it, it, it doesn't make practical sense. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they exalted their, their social status. They exalted their position politically. The Jews who lived near the temple thought they were, they, they were better than the Jews who lived away from the temple, that lived in Galilee. And so standing was everything. But God says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those like the beggar in relation to Lazarus. Who, doesn't, who don't have anything to offer God, 
other than their dependence upon God himself to enter this kingdom. So the very people that the Pharisees despised and pushed away like dirt, he goes, those people are blessed and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? You have to look at, at it contextually. In verse 4, he says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, is there practical use to mourning? Yes. Right? Solomon talks about it. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of, of laughter because mourning makes you think about things. Right? It's good for people during this virus situation to be sometimes be at home and think about things they haven't thought about before. Maybe I should start living for God because life is so frail. But here, the mourning is given to Israel, though. Why? Why were they supposed to mourn? Because they, they, they thought they were all right. They thought everything was good. They thought God was going to come and, and thought their righteousness was good enough. What did the prophets do? They told the people to repent, put on sackcloth and ashes, right? Break up the fallow ground. And so that was the message that he was preaching. You need to mourn instead of rejoicing in your self-proclaimed righteousness. What does James 4 say? It says, it says, be afflicted and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. That message is to Israel because they were to mourn over their wickedness in killing the prophets. Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. You had to mean meek, right? Meek, meekness is submitting to the authority of God. It's strength through humility. And the Pharisees were far from meek. But God says, if you're going to enter this kingdom, you have to submit to the commandments and the authority that I'm going to execute because I am in fact the king. Verse 6, he said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This was a promise. He says, look, the Pharisees don't desire true righteousness. The Sadducees don't desire true righteousness. It's just, it's, it's false, vain exaltation. But he goes, if you truly desire, like Simeon, who is waiting for the consolation of Israel, or the prophetess Anna, who is praying day and night in the temple for the coming Messiah, he goes, if you truly thirst for real righteousness in this kingdom, you're going to be filled. And that was the promise he was making. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The only way we can know peace is specifically through God, through Christ. He was coming to, well, and Jesus said himself, this is the weird thing, is he says, I came not to send peace, but a sword. This isn't just peace, blind unity, like non-denominationalism. This is peace in identifying the coming Messiah, in following him, in following his execution. Blessed are the peacemakers. In verse 10, the last, uh, the last blessing here, he says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ was already going to be attacked by the Pharisees and Sadducees. They already plotted to kill him. And he goes, if you're going to follow the king, chances are you're going you're to be persecuted just like I am. But he goes, that's okay because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And if you think about the tribulation period, if you're going to make it to the end, you're going to have to suffer persecution as a, as a Jew to make it to your to your king, right? You're going to have to deny the mark of the beast, deny those things. And even the, the, the disciples and these Jews, if they were going to follow Christ, they would suffer persecution. And even through the book of Acts, that Jewish church suffers immense persecution. And so just a little highlight there. Um, next uh, Wednesday, we'll probably um, focus in a little bit more on that. I'm going to um, just turn it back over to Pastor really quick, and then we'll go into the next hour. In every dispensation, you have to be reminded that salvation is in accordance to three things. Uh, that is faith, grace, and obedience. And as we think about obedience in many other dispensations, we see their faith being played out in a tangible way in order to find God's sense of approval on their life. And so these things are very important. It's very important to uh, 
to know, as uh, Matthew chapter 5, as Pastor Tyler just stated, that the Beatitudes, um, they're all conditional, conditional, if you do these things. Again, as we look at some portions of the New Testament, we understand um, many people will say today that we have to forgive other people in order for God to forgive us. And those points, although they're somewhat um, maybe a practical note of the need to forgive, to play them out in that tangible way and to say this is exactly um, what it is and what has to be done, they don't rightly divide the Bible. And thank God that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven, and we are complete in Christ. And uh, it's not that God looks at us. He looks at His Son, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so praise the Lord for the truth that we're hearing. It's a great study. I want to encourage you to pick back with us up.